Perhaps you point to and say, oh, I was related to him or to her. Uh, Perhaps you've seen a recent commercial that's uh, quite uh, frequent on the TV from Ancestry.com, a a perhaps new commercial, uh, focusing not so much on, you know, looking through documents to find who you're related to, um, by by going and having a DNA test done. They write on their website, Ancestry DNA, the DNA test that tells us a more complete story of you. Ancestry DNA provides richer connections to people, places, and possibilities. This sounds wonderful. Through this blood test, you can map out your history. You can find out where you're from and and, uh, particular places uh, in the world, what people groups you're a part of. And really the goal of this is for you to find meaning through association. That is meaning through association, not with the people that are alive, but the people who are dead. Meaning through community that doesn't really exist. Notice again they say that you will have richer connections to people, places, and possibilities. That is, uh, not you won't be lear- you know, leaning in perhaps. So for example, a lot of folks, uh, what they'll do in their life is they will, um, they will build into their kids. They'll project in their kids certain qualities that they wish they had in them. And so they want to be really good at. They they wish they were a good athlete. So what do they do? They got they got their kid down at the soccer field every every night, right? Because they're projecting into their child something. But but with with ancestry DNA, what what's happening here is it's not projecting forward but backwards. It's like looking back and saying, you know what? I'm going to find my significance from who my ancestors were or are. That's where I will find my significance. I'll look for admirable traits, right? That's why, you know, often we uh, are proud when we find out that someone famous uh, is a relative of ours. Right? We begin to tell everybody, hey, I was related to so-and-so. Isn't this cool? Or, or even infamous people, right? E- even that can have a, a stigma, uh, you know, that, hey, I was related to so-and-so. And, you know, yeah, he was a scoundrel, but, you know, that's kind of cool, isn't it? Uh, I'm not like, right? And, and so we're connect- we, we find association, excuse me, we find uh, really... Uh, our significance through association in that way. And that's attractive. I mean, these commercials run all the time. If you haven't seen them, they are on all the time. Why? Because we're always looking for significance in something. We're always trying to find some way to find significance in our lives. And the the problem when it comes to looking in our family trees for significance is, well, shortly we'll begin to find there's nothing really significant about it. We begin to search through the historical archives. We get the DNA test, and, and the results come back, and we just learn what we already knew. We're human beings, and we had some great-grandparents 100 years ago, and 1,000 years ago. And one day, yes, in glory, I think we will know some more of that. I think the Lord will peel back some of the, the mystery of that. Friends, the problem is, is that when we try to find significance from those in the past, sometimes we open a door that's quite scary. We might find that we were related to a, a mass murderer or a terrorist or, or, or something of the sort. We begin to, or that we're just ordinary people. There's really nothing significant about our ancestors. There's really nothing significant about them. What if you were rather to find in your tree something miserable and pathetic? And this morning we're going to consider a family who had not the greatest family tree. 
We're going to consider a family this morning that we have been looking at over the last four weeks. A family that on the surface looks quite amazing. They look honorable. They look really faithful. And they are. But as we begin to dig into their lives, we begin to dig into who their ancestors were. We begin to see something quite shocking. That this family is a notorious family. A family filled with some of the most heinous sin. Sins that almost are unspeakable. Well, over the last few weeks, we have been working through uh, the book of Ruth. And we've been considering this ancient family in Israel. Uh, Ruth, uh, the main character, uh, Naomi, her mother-in-law, and Boaz, her soon-to-be husband. Uh, We've considered how this family has gone from the darkest night to the light of hope, where they have gone from losing everything, from extreme poverty and sorrow, through the loss of their husbands, Naomi losing her husband, Ruth losing hers. They're in a land that for Naomi is foreign, for Ruth it's her hometown. And they have decided to travel back to, their, to Naomi's hometown of Bethlehem in search for what they hope will be provisions. You see, in ancient Israel, a widow would have been basically a death sentence to a woman who did not have someone to provide and protect her. There was no social services for the widows to go to. There was no social security check that they could depend on. There was nothing outside of the people of God and particularly families providing for them that they would survive. For many many widows, they would... turn to begging, they would turn to lives of prostitution, lives of sin in order to make a way. But what we learn in the story over the last few weeks is that God's hand had been in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. That in the midst of some of the most extreme poverty and sorrow, we saw God at work. God was bringing about something glorious and magnificent. And last week, at the climax of the story, as Ruth has approached Boaz, someone who she could potentially marry, someone who could provide for her and for her mother-in-law, the question remained, will Boaz fulfill this responsibility? What will happen to Ruth? What will happen to Naomi? And what is to become of their lives? Friends, that's what we want to kind of move into this morning in our next sort of final scene of the book of Ruth in chapter 4. So I invite you to turn there to Ruth chapter 4. There's a few Bibles in front of you, so if you don't have your Bible with you this morning, you don't have a Bible, I just invite you to grab that one in front of you. Turn to page 224 in the black pew Bibles um, and uh, look for the big number 4 on the page. And we're going to consider this, this last chapter of the book of Ruth. Uh, today and then next week we're going to begin a series uh, through First Peter and so uh, you can be reading there this week and preparing yourself for First Peter but but today we're going to finish up Ruth and thinking oh and, and I've been excited about getting to Ruth chapter four because it's like it, it it's the full story and and this story let me just tell you it explodes uh, in a glorious way and how God is moving human history forward for His glory what will happen. Let's find out. Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. 
And behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, and sit down. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sir, sit here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those seeing here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in the former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kelon and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in, the, in his inheritance, the name of the dead may, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like, that, like the house of Perez, whom Tamar born to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amedeb. Amedeb fathered Nahashan. Nahashan fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Well, as we consider the climax and the conclusion of this story, what's the point? What is the point of this story? What, what's the point of, of this? What does it really matter that, that this ancient family, you know, that Ruth marries Boaz and, well, and they have a kid together and, you know, that kid happens to be related to David? You know, what's the significance of that? What's the significance to the fact that they're related to Judah? What's the significance that they're related to Leah and to Rachel? What's the significance of the story? I think it's this. 
amidst some of the darkest days in the life of God's people, the light of God's grace shines through as he provides a, a king, a king who will deliver them from their enemies and provide them rest. As we will see in this story, that the redemption foreshadowed here, Boaz redeeming Ruth, redeeming a name for Malon. As we see that story of redemption unfold before us, we will see that this story of redemption foreshadows another story, a greater story, a bigger story, the story of Christ Jesus' redemption of us through the cross. So this morning I want to consider really in our text, interwoven throughout this, three stories. In this text there's really three stories. You might not really see them on the surface, but they're there. There's really three stories interwoven throughout that. First is really just the story before us, the story of Ruth and Boaz. But there's another story that's interwoven throughout this story, and that's the backstory, the history, uh, where they came from and who they are. And then thirdly, that, that last story, which is the bigger story, the story that actually stretches from Genesis to Revelation, the story of Christ and his redemption. And so let's look first at the, the story before us. Let's just kind of get the lay of the land, if you will, on what's going on here. It's strange. I know it feels weird, right? I, 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 I know your ears perked up when I read, and I have bought, I have bought Ruth as my, what do you mean? What does that mean? That he, he, he's buying a wife. Now that just seems weird to us. It seems strange to us. What's going on in this story? Well, how can we make sense of it? So I think first, just want to look at the story itself, try to make sense of what's going on here, and then see kind of what the significance is for us in our lives together as God's people. So first, the story before us. Let's just, let's just look at what happened. We're told here of this situation with Boaz and this other gentleman, this unnamed redeemer, as he's called. Now, last week we considered um, that, that Boaz and Ruth have, have kind of gotten engaged, if you will. Ruth has gone down to Boaz while he was at work. Uh, Boaz was out working. Um, and at the, at the end of a long day, after Boaz was tired and he had uh, eaten and he was rested and joyful, uh, Boaz went to sleep. And, and the custom that, from what we can understand, the custom in ancient Israel was if a wife or a potential wife wanted to, you know, kind of introduce the idea, uh, not of courtship, not of marriage, but in this particular case, Bo, Boaz a widow and Ruth a widow, uh, how would they get together? How would, how would a couple widows get together? And uh, as we consider that, we saw that, that Ruth was instructed by Naomi to go down uh, to the threshing floor and, to, and to, to go down there and request. And so she requested, uh, will you redeem me? Will, will you redeem me? In the sense that, will you become my husband and provide and protect me because I don't have a husband to do that anymore? And Boaz said, yes. Boaz says, let me, let me do some investigation because he knew that there was another guy who was kind of uh, closer to Elimelech, uh, to Elimelech and Malon than him. We don't know, you know, the family tree. We don't know, you know, were they th third cousins? Fourth? We don't know. The, we don't know. Okay. Uh, we can't really surmise. But, but there was this other redeemer that was closer. That is someone who's right. And one of the things I want you to notice is, is the honorable way in which Boaz lived. He could have taken Ruth. He could have snatched her up. He could have said, you know, I'm going to take you as my wife. Forget that guy. I don't, I don't have to do 
But notice how he lived honorable, how he lived a life that, that was honorable. One of the things that, that really is going on here then in the backstory of this is God, in God's word, he provided a law that helped per, protect women and, and children. Uh, one of the things in, in our country why we have uh, di- divorce laws uh, is to help protect women and children. Uh, that's why, you know, in our nation we have those to protect women and children. Now, with no-fault divorce laws, that kind of went out the window, and, and uh, they weren't provided and cared for in the way that they once were. But uh, God has always had for his people a plan uh, to protect widows. And so in Leviticus, you don't have to turn there. I know Leviticus is your favorite book of the Bible, um, but you can look at that later. Leviticus 25, I'm going to read it now in, in verse 25. And just listen to, to Moses' instruction here. So Leviticus uh, 25, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate, calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it, and then return his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee it shall be released, and his, and his property shall return to him. So in essence, what has happened here is God has provided in his word a law to protect. And so what we see in Ruth is sort of the unfolding of that law. We see God uh, working in the lives. And, and remember, this is not, these, these aren't the best days in the life of God's people. Uh, this is the time of sin and rebellion. People are just doing kind of things however they want. Uh, but yet in the midst of that, uh, Boaz is showing faithfulness. And Boaz, we're told, fulfills all the legal re- requirements of redemption. We see in the exchange there that he introduces it to the, the opportunity of redemption to this other redeemer. Now notice, if you will, uh, Boaz uh, in the way he's kind of coy. Uh, he, do- he doesn't lay it all out on the table. He, he begins with the land. He says, there's land to be bought. And this redeemer, this unnamed redeemer, gets kind of excited. He's like, man, that, I, I'm all about that. Because, see, what would happen is if you redeem the land, you would increase your profits, right? More land, more profits. More land you have. So, so he saw this. And, and it wasn't, again, ancient Israel, everyone had their own land. You, you really couldn't get more land unless you bought it from someone else. And, and so we see this. Now, look at the story here. Look with me in verse 3. Then he goes to his redeemer. Naomi, who has come back from the country of Boab, Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here. So he's saying, look, here's this opportunity. But notice how he doesn't tell him about, Na- about Ruth. That comes later. Well, ultimately, we're told here that, that this ultimately came at a great cost for Boaz. That is a personal cost. This was going to be expensive for Boaz. This was not going to be something that was easy. This was not something that was just sort of a passing thing. We see that really in the words of the other Redeemer in verse 6. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption, for I cannot redeem it. This was going to be costly. This was going to be costly because Boaz did not have freedom in the choice he was about to make in the sense that he got Ruth no matter what he didn't have a choice in the matter it wasn't like you know I'm just going to cast Ruth aside I just want the land for myself and so this came at a great cost for him and we're going to see some significance of that in a moment and so as a result of Boaz's faithfulness as a result of his goodness and his kindness which again is a reflection of God's goodness and kindness 
we see that the elders bless him. And in verses 11 through 12, the elders bless him for his goodness and faithfulness. Uh, They begin in verse 11 by, by calling a blessing. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Rachel and Leah were the wives of Jacob. And you'll remember in the story there that Leah was the servant. Leah was the one who uh, was was not a servant, but she was kind of treated like a servant. She was the, the one that, that Laban tricked uh, Jacob for. Uh, he thought he was going to get Rachel, the prettier one, the good-looking one, you know, the younger one. But what ended up happening is he got Leah as a wife, and Laban tricked him to... Uh, and, and really conned him into to more time and more labor. And so Leah was an outsider. Leah was somebody who um, was not wanted. And Leah was the one who bore Judah, uh, which is the, the, the great descendant of Boaz here. Uh, and so there's some significance there in that story, some connection between Ruth and Leah, that Ruth also was an outsider. Ruth also wasn't the, you know, the young one. And so we see a significance there. And they also, go on to, they also go on to pray that in the midst of this, that God would bless him as he continues to obey the Lord. Ultimately, their blessing, the elder's blessing here, is that the name would be perpetuated. And then comes this just really strange thing in verse 12 when he says that, that may your house be like the house of Perez. Perez was the child of Judah, the child that, that Judah had. And we're going to consider that in just a moment. But, but friends, the real application of this, as we think about the story, is that it is really faith in faithless times. These were not good times. These are not the great times. These were the bad times. And in the midst of the bad times, God's people were trying to be faithful. A small remnant were being faithful to the Lord and following his. And so, friends, I hope that you would just find hope. In, in the story here, how, how Ruth remained faithful, how Boaz remained faithful, even though it looked like things would not turn out well, God's goodness in their life, that God, as we considered last week, that God rewards those who obey his word. Now, there's a great reward for obedience to God. And we see it in that story, in this story, the story before us, that, that there's obedience, that, that when we obey the Lord, when we trust him, that, yeah, things may not work out the way we think they should, They always work out for his glory and for our good. God rewards those who obey his word. Now I want us to look again at verse 12. I want to kind of pivot from verse 12 and and, and from there consider the backstory. Oh, because there's rich backstory here uh, that I want you to see, and and I don't want you to leave without seeing it. Uh, Verse 12, and may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. Who is Tamar and Judah? Well, friend, if you have your Bible open, I invite you to turn over to to Genesis chapter 38. Genesis chapter 38. Now, I wonder, as you're turning there, as you're thinking, who are these people? I bet you if we were to take a survey in here, if you've been in church a little time in your life, or, or maybe you just heard the story of Joseph, right? Oh, that, that, that wonderful story of Joseph and, and his faithfulness and, and his goodness and, and how in the midst of some of the really most deplorable situations, Joseph was faithful. Joseph was good, right? We know that story of Joseph. It really takes up most of the end of Genesis. I mean, 
well over 12 chapters devoted to Joseph and this narrative. And, and it's a really important thing. But in the midst of the Joseph narrative, in the midst of the story of Joseph and his life and, and how God's providence, in the midst of it comes invading Judah and Tamar. The most awkward and most strange story in, in really most of the Old Testament. Perhaps in your life you, you have that, that uncle or that relative in your life. You know the one that, you know, when you gather together for Thanksgiving, you, you don't really, he's kind of creeps you out. He's just kind of weird. He, he, he just does weird things. And, and maybe he just has a sordid past. He's, he's on his maybe 10th wife and he's got kids by, by a dozen. And he's just, just strange and weird. And, and he just makes you feel awkward. You keep your kids away from him. And you just wish he wasn't a part of your, your family. He's the butt of your jokes. He's the derision and pain of your family. He's, he's the one that your mom always talks about. Oh my gosh, uncle so-and-so. Well, for Joseph, it was no different. Joseph had his brother Judah, who was a mess. A big mess. Judah was like his daddy in many ways. He was just as conniving and wicked as, Joseph, as uh, Jacob and we see it played out here. But I want you to, as, you, as we read through this, I want you to see the symbolism and parallelism between 38 and what we read in chapter 4 of Ruth. Just listen. Chapter 38 of Genesis. It happened at the time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hariah. There Judah saw the daughters of a certain Canaanite, whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and he called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Chezeb when she bore him. So just to be clear, all of this behavior by Judah was wicked and sinful. Okay, and Judah is in straight sin here. He's in, he's in rebellion against God. All right, This is not good for Judah. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Remember Tamar? His son's wife, Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother." But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah my son grows up, for, his, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So here's Tamar, a widow. Uh, she... She, her, we see here a similarity in the fact that the, the relatives will not perform the duty that they are called to do. They forsake God's purpose and plan and because they do not want to have children uh, with Tamar. And then here's where the story gets even more twisted. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to, to, to Timnah, to his sheep shears, he and his friends, Harai and the Adulamite. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she took her widow's garment off and covered herself in a veil, wrapping herself off, and sat at the entrance of Enan, which is on the road of Timnah. 
For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and says, Come, uh, let me come into you, for you do not know... For you do not know that she was the daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will give you a young goat from the flock. And he said, I will give you a pledge and you send it. And he said, you pledge, will you get, what pledge will you give? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So she gave it to them and went into her and she conceived to him. And then she arose and went away and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of widowhood. As the story unfolds, we can see the vileness of the story. We can see the twistedness of the story. This is God's word, and it's a revelation to us of the depravity of man, the wickedness of man. But in the midst of that, what we see is that God is going to use this wicked man, Judah, and his son, Perez. Perez, the son that's born tomorrow, though. In the midst of the wickedness of this story, we see that, that God is going to bless this, this guy. That God is not only going to give him a child, but from this child is going to be the king of Israel. God works in ways that sometimes we can't figure out apart from his revelation. As the story unfolds, we'll, you will see that, that she came into labor, that he finds out that she, that she tricked him. It all comes out, and Judah provides for Tamar and for his son, Perez. So we can see that this was kind of a sordid family. This was not the kind of family you walked around and said, hey, you remember you know, my, my great-grandfather Jude and what he did? Right? You, didn't, you didn't talk about it. You didn't, you, didn't, you didn't think it was very proud. And we see that in Ruth, the narrator does the same, right? Because the narrator leaves who out of the, the genealogy? He leaves out Judah because of his wickedness. Highlighting that what God is doing through Perez, someone who was an outcast, a stranger. But yet God was doing something great. You know that old saying that God won't bless a mess? God won't bless a mess? You know, that's actually not true. That's so not true. It's actually a half-truth. Packer often says a half-truth is not a truth. No, it's exactly those who are a mess that God enters their lives and he redeems them. In Genesis, at the conclusion of the book of Genesis, God gives a word about Judah and he says, Judah, your brother shall praise you. <laughs> he was not praiseworthy. Look at what he did with his life. Look at how he lived. Judah was not praiseworthy, but yet God said that he would, that his brothers would praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. God was going to make from Judah the king. God was going from the line of Judah, from the family tree of Judah, was going to become the king of Israel. As we see in the narrative, that's exactly what happened. And so God here in this story is not only redeeming Ruth, but he is redeeming Judah. He is redeeming this tribe of Judah, this, this people that, that did not live in the fear of God and the admonition of God, but a people. And so for, as we turn back to Ruth, we learn in, in verses 13 and following that, that, that through this redemption, Boaz is married. Boaz marries Ruth, and they have a child. 
As we consider here in this, that Boaz is providing here for Elimelech and his family. Remember, Ruth was, was barren. She had been barren for 10 years. She had, she had been childless. Malon and her never had a kid together. But yet immediately, we are told that they have a son. God's kindness to Ruth is evident. We don't want to miss this point. It's so important. Childlessness creates great sorrow and pain and hurt. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe that's your history. You you know the pain of, of childlessness. You know the pain that it brings. And so it brought for Ruth. And But yet in the midst of this, that God is providing a child, a, a blessing to their lives. Not only that, God pr- provides a blessing to Naomi. As we, we see the woman who, when she re- came from uh, back from Moab at the beginning of the story in chapter 1 said that, that God had emptied her. She had nothing. She, she, she just wanted to die. I've returned empty-handed. But what do we see here at the end? Her hand is full. With a child in her lap, she sees the blessings of God and the kindness of God. And so God is working through this to redeem, to restore life, as the women say in verse 15. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And isn't that so true of our Redeemer? Isn't that so true of what Jesus Christ gives to us? That he is a restorer of life? That he is the one who nourishes us? The one who provides for us? And friends, one of the big stories of this that we're going to consider here in a moment is That through Christ, through the redemption we have in Christ, sin no longer defines you. One of the great truths of the gospel is that sin no longer defines you. What defined these people was their great-granddaddy Judah. What defined them was the wickedness of their past. A people who did not have the greatest family tree. And so there's encouragement here this morning. That through Christ... You can have hope that we receive a new identity, as Paul says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. The gospel is so glorious because God isn't in the business of cleaning us up, kind of making us a better version of ourselves, but rather giving us a completely new person, a new creation. And so we don't have to fear the past. We don't have to be despairing over what our past involves because in Christ the old has passed away. And brother and sister, may that just be an encouragement to your soul today. Meditate on that truth that the old has passed away. The old man is gone. The new man has come. As as Paul, as God tells us in his word, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your old life is gone. It's dead. And the life that God now sees is the life of Christ. The goodness of Christ. As we look down and conclude our story here, look with me in verse 17. And the women of of the neighborhood, this is beautiful, gave him a name. Ovid. And Ovid... Someone special. He was the father of Jesse. He was the father of David. 
As we see here in this concluding words, this is our words of hope. And as we began our study four weeks ago, we, we began with the question, who's this story really about? Who's this story really about? Is it about Ruth? The title in your Bible may lead you to believe that, but, but it's not. Is it about Naomi? Is it about perhaps Perez, Judah, redemption of them? Or is it about, about King David? As I argue then and I'll argue now, this story is really about David. And more importantly, David's greater son. It's strange to end a story with a genealogy. Nowhere in the Bible does this happen except for Ruth. Everywhere, it always begins with genealogy. But here it ends as a climax, as the, as the pinnacle for which the whole story has been driving. Look at the last word, the very last word out of the mouth of God. And Jesse fathered David. If you look in your Bibles, 1 Samuel, story about how God is going to give a king. You will remember that, that refrain from Judges 21-25. The, the last word of Judges, the book that precedes that, the time in which this takes place is this. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Wickedness ran throughout, and it was rampant, and there was no king in Israel. The problem was that people were not following God. And God here is fulfilling his promise to his people. God is providing them a king. God provides first Saul as, as the story of 1 Samuel unfolds. And then from there we recognize that Saul, Saul was the people's choice award. right? That's what he won. Like he, he was the people's choice. He always won that award. He was the people's choice. But David was God's choice. David was a runt. He wasn't anything special about David. As it turned out, David was pretty wicked himself, just like his great-grandfather Judah. And fascinatingly enough, that's the story of all the Bible, all the people that God used. But God here is providing a king. And you might think, well, what's the big deal about a king? Who really cares about a king? Well, you see, the king was going to provide the people safety. The people was going to provide the people deliverance, protection. Prosperity. The king was going to be a reflection of God to the people. The king, as he lived out his life as a God, after, a man after God's own heart, he was going to reflect God to the people, just as all leaders do, just as husbands do, just as fathers do. We reflect God in the lives of those under our care. But here, God is fulfilling His promises, and as we know. David wasn't that great. He had some problems himself. And, and really what it turned out to be is that David was just as wicked and sinful as his ancestors and so his children. Beginning with Solomon all the way down through. A whole lot of them were wicked. A whole lot of them were, were sinful, broken. Though yes, they did good things. Yes, but they all fell short of God's glory. And so the prophets prophesied of a greater king. A greater son, the son of David that would come. A son of David that Isaiah tells us in the day, the root of Jesse. Jesse, right here. Obed's son. Ruth's grandson. The root of Jesse. Who shall stand as a signal for the people. Of him shall the nations inquire. And his resting place shall be glorious. 
Or Jeremiah, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved. You see, it's all coming together. This one king that would come from David would redeem the whole lot of them, the whole broken nation. In fact, this king would not only redeem the nation and the tribe of Judah, but he would redeem the world. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. And here we'll land. And here we'll end. Matthew chapter 1, the very beginning of the New Testament. That section that every preacher skips over. Matthew chapter 1. And here's where we'll end. Matthew chapter 1. Oh, friends, I wanted you to see how this all goes together like a beautiful picture. And this story is God's story of redemption. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. There's our boy Judah again. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. There's Tamar again. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezer, Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Amenadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz, by Ruth, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David. And as we begin to read on, I, I won't, for time's sake, read down through these, but as we make our way through this great genealogy, we come to the end in verse 16. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. Through Boaz and Ruth, God provided a redeemer. Through Boaz and Ruth, God provided a redeemer. And as Boaz fulfills all the legal requirements of redemption, on the cross, Jesus publicly pays the price of our redemption. For Boaz, the redemption came at a, a great cost. Jesus pays the costly redemption of our lives with his own blood. For Boaz, redemption led to marriage. Jesus redeems his people to make them his bride. Boaz provided an inheritance for Elimelech and his family. And Jesus provides us with an inheritance that is eternal. You might restore an old car. You might refurbish an old house or repurpose a piece of furniture or even revitalize a neighborhood. But none of these compares to the idea of redemption. In redemption through Christ, we have new life. And that redemption can be yours through faith in Christ by turning from your life, from your way, and going God's way. And friends, I hope you would see this big story of God's goodness and greatness and why all through this service we have been encouraging you to trust in the Lord, to put your hope in God. From Genesis through Revelation, we see God's unfolding story of faithfulness and goodness that God never fails a promise He makes. Whether it be the promise from Judah that he would make him 
out of his children a king or the promise to David that one of David's sons would sit on his throne forever. So God is faithful. Nothing is impossible for God. No sin is too great. No life too messed up. You may have the most sordid family tree in all the world. I will bet you don't have one as messed up as Judas. God is great and good. And so how will you redeem yourself? Will it be by being a better you? You know, being a good person. You know, cleaning up yourselves. Getting, getting just a better version of you. Uh, will you find it in moralism? Will you find it in self-righteousness? Will you find it? Will you redeem yourself by religious activity? You know, church attendance, reading your Bible, doing good deeds, giving your money. Will it be by redefining who God is? By, oh, God's so loving and kind and good. I mean, he's got to accept me, right? I mean, you know, he's, he's love, and he doesn't really care so much about how I live. You know, as long as I just don't make too big of a mess. Friends, as good and appealing as those ways might be, all of those ways would fail you. They will all fail because they, there's one fundamental thing wrong with them. They have a complete misunderstanding of who you are. And your wickedness and sinfulness. Friends, you're not a fixer-upper. You're, you're not God's cosmetic project that he's just working to, to make you prettier. Friends, there's there no amount of makeup you can put on a corpse and not make it look like a corpse. And so what God is doing through Christ is redeeming you, purchasing you to make you new. God sent his son not to give you a better life now or a better version of you, but a new you. That You might be a new creation in Christ. Through faith in Christ, you get a whole new set of documents. Your birth certificate's worthless. Your family tree, just throw it away. Because you're new. You're a new creation in Christ. You have a whole new family that you've been adopted into. You get a whole new birth certificate. All for God's glory. Let's pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we pray that your word would not only be heard, but it would be transformative in our lives. Oh, Father, we often in our lives lose faith in suffering. When things are tough and hard, we give up and quit. Forgive us for that. Father, we pray that, that you would, through your word, just speak a better sermon than the one is heard. We pray, Lord, that you would edify and build up your church for your glory and our good. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. As we began this morning...